Now, may I introduce our guests to you this morning? We have Ken Murphy, DG of the Law Society, Jennifer Bray, Irish Times political reporter, Adrian Weckler, technology editor, uh, Irish and Sunday Independent, Ashling Meehan, farmer, solicitor and tax consultant, and Donoghue Bachon, uh, professor in international relations in DCU. Now, I think we might... There are a whole load of interlinked connections here. Um, I'd say that Verona Murphy's probably feeling uh, the heat of all the attention that she's getting. Uh, Ken Murphy, you looked at that story on the front of the Business Post. Yes, the Business Post. So maybe it's just worth noting. It's not. It is the Business Post now. We had something yeah. for us all to get used to. And I just mentioned Richard Oakley has a, an editorial, the new editor of the Business Post. On page three, he says, the decision to change our name was not taken lightly, but it's necessary to help us to adapt to a changing media landscape. The Business Post is now part of a wider media group and so on. And it says right. uh, we also publish articles online during the week. So it's, it's, a, re it's a shift and a recognition that it's not just a Sunday paper anymore. It, it started. So come back to our story on the front page. A re there is a redesign uh, and the story and the exclusive big red um, um, print print says um, RSA warned Mur Murphy not to interfere with safety inspectors. Verona Murphy had to be warned not to con contact safety inspectors during road checks by a state agency in a row that has reached the Dawes Public Accounts Committee, the Business Post can reveal. As we know, her background is in the Irish Road Hauliers Association. Yeah. Um, and there's some controversy here about her having taken, uh, interfering in, in, in road checks. You know, I don't think this is going to shift many voters' views in Wexford. I think other comments she's been making um, are more likely to be um, uh, indicative. And, and much of the speculation in the paper is what her comments on, on race and, and, and immigration and what effect they will have possibly on her, on her vote. Yeah, there's, a, there's coverage also of the fact that it's her members who kind of have that direct contact with people coming as stowaways. Yes. Um, again, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I wonder about this as the, as the front lead story to run with a new new branded uh, newspaper. OK. I wonder, is it a strong enough story? They have a, they have a Red Sea State of the Parties in, poll inside, but there isn't much change in those. So maybe they ran with this story. And because it's Verona Murphy, who is, shall we say, front Fox and central office. of yeah. so much public controversy at the moment, they, I don't think this is a particularly strong story. Yeah. But Verona Murphy is certainly a strong story. Okay, Jennifer. Yeah, so the, the, that same paper, the Business Post, also have details of a poll which shows that Fine Gael are at 30%, down 2%. And they attribute a lot of that in the paper to comments made by Verona Murphy uh, in relation to ISIS. Um, and it's it's hard to disagree with that. I mean, the, the real... Uh, the, the real truth of the matter will come out on polling day. That's the only time you'll know whether those. But you still won't really know. Very true. Yeah, and, and you know, I went out canvassing with uh, Verona Murphy the Friday before last. Yeah. And what I will say is, it struck me that she is incredibly energetic. She was received very, very well on the doorsteps, particularly by women who talked about a boys' club in Wexford for a long time. Right. And we were around six minutes into the canvas when I asked her about uh, migration and any sentiment she was experiencing on the doorsteps, and she made those comments in relation to ISIS being a large part of the migrant population. Now, I spoke to a couple of um, relatively senior people in Fine Gael over the last few days, people who are monitoring her campaign. And a lot of them do still seem to think that she can win this. And there is a real feeling in the party that 
you know, there's a lot of public backlash in the media about her comments, but that those comments might not necessarily harm her on the ground. Um, and that remains to be seen. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens there. But uh, I think it's also interesting to note that Michael Brennan has a piece in the in the Sunday Business Post where he talks about how Fine Gael have lost the high moral ground. So Fianna Fáil previously uh, under attack for comments their, their by-election candidate made in yeah. Fingal, um, the voting controversy. And now we have Fine Gael uh, feeling the heat over their, their candidate uh, in the by-elections. Right. We also will probably come to it later on. There's another article in the wisdom of whatever you say, say nothing, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, sometimes doing interviews uh, doesn't work in your favour. Mind you, I shouldn't be saying that because I want people uh, to do <laughs> interviews into you anymore, in as much <laughs> as possible. Now, uh, we'll move on, I think, because we'll probably come back to that later in a different context. Broadband, a Sunday Times, why the mystery over why the mystery over broadband funding, and that's from Justine McCarthy, and there is also uh, from Colin McCarthy, flawed project puts public money at risk. Let me go to you, Adrian, on that one. Yeah, so there are two pieces you mentioned there. So Justine McCarthy in the Sunday Times is really looking at the financial trail and the ownership trail of who's behind the money. Um, behind, which is funding the consortium that has won this uh, broadband contract. And it's essentially some of the money is coming from Warren Buffett's business partner's family, a guy called Walter Scott, his family. They're based in Nebraska. Uh, and long-term business partners of David McCourt, who is the American who uh, who, who basically heads the consortium that, that won uh, this particular uh, contract. In the Sunday Independent, Colin McCarthy has, I have to say, yet another article outlining why he doesn't think it's good value for money. Um, And he's not challenging the the technology of it. He's not challenging the principle of broadband to individual homes, but he's basically saying that uh, the the co- it, it doesn't weigh up uh, in terms uh, of cost. Um, so there's and there's quite a well. B- he makes the point too. Well, he's made it good several times that you don't get an ESB collection mm. connection free, or you don't get a gas connection free for all of those utilities you pay to get your connection. Yeah, I, th- that's a, and and he's he's right there. I think there is a one hundred euro charge somewhere in in the early stages of getting connected. So I'm not sure if it's completely free, but I suppose uh, what he is taking issue with is the scale of this uh, project. I mean, there are a lot of people on the other side of this argument. Most opinion polls that have been conducted into this idea of connecting rural homes, both in cities and in rural areas, most of them are actually supportive of it. So, So the issue is not really... Uh, about uh, connecting rural homes to broadband. The issue is basically um, cost. Now, you can talk about the technology behind it. And uh, Colin McCarthy isn't arguing either that fibre is not the best route because an awful lot of this debate is, are we wasting our money on fibre to the home? Yeah. Now, if you look at what's happening in the UK, Jeremy Corbyn last week, uh, or the week free before. free for all. Free fibre to the home for all. Now, BT costed that at somewhere around £50 billion. Now, I think Corbyn's plan was to nationalise British Telecom, BT, yeah. to do that. In Ireland's case, we know what the costs are going to be. It's actually going to cost €5 billion, Euro, so two. 2.6 or 2.6. So it's it's five billion euro to actually build and run this, of which 2.6 or 2.7 will essentially will come from the state via a subsidy, right? right. So so the rest will come via 
you know, revenue, operating costs, some capital put in by the consortium, a small amount, it has to be said, around 200 million, 220 million. Um, but the, the so, so the debate has kind of moved on a little bit over. Are uh, we going to run into another children's hospital? Is that possible? I mean, I don't know. Anything However, the, I, I do know that there is a very, very long contract. Part of the reason why the contract took so long to sign, I've been in the studio for years and years. Uh, you, you asked me the question uh, a few years ago, I think it was 2015 or 2016, when the promise was by 2020. And you asked me when I thought we would see the first homes being rolled out. Yeah. And I said 2023 and you gasped at the time. Yes. Um, now, it looks like we're bang on 22, 2023 for a couple of hundred, th- hundred thousand homes yeah. uh, to be connected. Um, but the, 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 the fact that the contract has been signed takes an awful lot of the wind out of this story. Yes, it does. Ashling, you, <clears throat> you, you live in County Clare. What's the story down there? What's the availability of broadband? Well, the first thing I think worth mentioning is that uh, David McCourt is, lives in the same village as I do, the same parish, Newmarket and Fergus. Um, and it was very interesting that Tuesday, just hours after the deal had been concluded, yeah. he bypassed interview requests from the national media and he met the local... A reporter from the Clare Champion in the local pub O'Neill's in the village of Namark and Fergus, which was extraordinary. Um, and they covered it in the Clare Champion this week. Um, and he was, I suppose, he's a bit miffed. He's for, arguing about the money and he yeah, doesn't like the coverage. He doesn't like the coverage and he's a bit miffed that that's what the coverage has been about the cost and the overspend, etc. And he made the point, he was saying, OK, if you look at it, he said one billion automatically goes for pole rental to Aircom. That's very expensive, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, it's that, a regulated that, price. Yeah, he he yeah. Re- mentioned to rent the infrastructure, half a billion for VAT three quarters of a billion for contingencies, which has to be set aside if there's any problems. So he was saying, really, you're looking at 900 million for a project over 25 years. Um, and he put it that 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 crudely. Um, and I suppose, you know, so people would, you know, have, I suppose, have asked, is it worth it at all costs in order to have yeah. broadband in rural Ireland? Um, it's interesting that actually this week the IFA published a report um, on digital and adoption and attitudes report and 55% um, of those questioned identified a lack of qu- or quality broadband as the main barrier to adoption of technology in farming. And that feeds into even the climate change debate because, you know, in terms of precision farming and tillage, etc. So the next barrier was at 23% and was the cost of purchasing or maintaining technology. So you can see the, I suppose, the, the, or the, the, the importance that people askew to is the fact that the broadband isn't there. It's not reliable enough. Yeah. Do you, in, in your area, is there good broadband? It's so-so. So, so, right. you know, it can be hit and miss. And that's not that's, you know, I'm, I'm running a, a legal practice as five of us in the practice. And, you know, everything is instantaneous now. It's all emails and, you know, we're not focusing on snail mail anymore. Yeah. And if the emails are backed up or slowed down, it really interferes with the, pra- you know, interferes Absolutely. with the day to day work. So I think that if we do have reliable broadband, that it would really help in, yeah. in you know. And, and most in, farming stuff now, say dealing with Europe or dealing with the Department of Agriculture for farmers in general, that's all online. It's now. all online. It's all online. So be it like applying for, um, you know, the different schemes. Um, a lot of that is online now and it's compulsory that has to be online. There isn't paper applications anymore. 
um, in terms of, you know, um, animal movements, be it registering animals after they're born or animals being moved from one holding to another is through the CMMS, um, through the Department of Agriculture. It's all online, even dealing with revenue. You know, we saw the complications with like I was up yeah. trying to upload tax returns for the last couple of weeks. And, you know, there was Ross outages and it's the most frustrating thing in the world because you're sitting in the office and you're just hitting refresh and refresh and refresh. And, you you know, your time could be better spent doing other things. Yeah. OK. Just I... one one final point. Yes. Just what killed some of the opposition to the National Broadband Plan was Margaret Vestager, who is the European uh, Commission, yes. uh, Competition Commissioner. Now, in her analysis, they, they essentially gave the go ahead for the to the government to commit state funds yeah. to this scheme and Margaret Vestager, the scourge of Apple, the breaker of massive tech companies, the person who whose words you take basically said that private sector alternatives weren't and would not mm. uh, provide decent broadband in those areas. So when you hear a lot of when you're politicians and, yeah. and some small uh, broadband operators say, no, 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 there's no problem here. Just give us money. We, we'll give you enough to do your email and for Netflix. Really, that once that not argument was enough. Enough, it's not good enough. Private okay. market won't provide this. No. Yeah. And I suppose the rest of us who are getting by will have to have a look at, at you know, will the Wi-Fi, you know, line of sight stuff work for was any more but it's the, it really is it seems to me it's the 21st century yeah. equivalent of, of, of um, rural electrification, electrification. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a necessity yeah. well, well that's what, exactly how Pat Rabbit put it back in mm. 2012 and you ask Marion is this uh, another children's hospital or will it become it already yeah. is I mean it's six times the initial estimate that was put out we're talking about three billion that was for a different service though oh, that was fair. for a different service yeah, was it yeah I mean ah. the, the initial estimate I was at that press conference mm. the initial estimate 500 million odd and Pat Rabbit at the time was very kind of vague about that figure because it wasn't costed properly. But the idea was to roll broadband into small villages and towns into one central point and essentially then let small operators take it and sort of, you know, beam it out, uh, you know, via wireless, via a point to point or or microwave. That changed, that evolved into a fibre line going right into your home, like an electricity line or like, you know, like a phone line, that was always going to be way, way more expensive. From the point of view of longevity and this thing surviving 20, 30 years, the fibre is a million times better. I mean, if you look at what Air is doing, uh, it is uh, now trying to put in fibre to the home. It's trying to replace its entire Dublin network, the copper landlines, with fibre to the home. That's going to cost them a lot of money. But there's a reason they're doing that. They're not relying on 5G and wireless. It is absolutely the goal. Yeah, you're from Clare as well. I am, and as it turns out, Ashley said she's from Newmarket, Fergus. That's the exact same village that I'm originally from. So, forty percent of your panel are from this small village in County Clare, (laughs) and I I go down to my mother's every month in Newmarket, Fergus, and the the Wi-Fi is pretty awful. Right. Uh, The contrast with Dublin is 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 stark. And uh, now the question, I mean, about regarding this scheme, I mean, everybody would be enthusiastic about it, but I tell you that too long a wait has made a stone of the heart, so to speak. I mean, it's just been talked about so much. And in 2015, Alex White was talking about 2020 as a date in a draft strategy and and should have talked to Adrian yeah yeah. and then then there's the cost of course I mean like in terms of per per person as I understand it the state won't own this after putting billions into Mm -hmm. it won't own it after it's completed but it's not actually worth that much at the end I think Mm. the estimates as to how much well there will be a steady income there would there would be they hope there'll be a steady income there will be a steady income but I presume that's only after after they maintain it and and fix it and and, and all of that Um, I think the figure is somewhere around four or five hundred million it Mm. might be worth uh, at the end because Air still owns the polls. That one billion of the three billion Mm -hmm. is paid to Air to use its telephone polls. They will still 
own their telephone poles, okay? So what you actually own of the network at the end of the 25 or 30 year process is really a customer base, the actual physical fibre lines themselves, which you have to replace anyway yeah. from, from time to time. It's nowhere near as much as the billions that somewhere is that okay. making. Okay, Jennifer? There's a real political element to this as well. Um, and there was talk and you were talking about the interview we gave in, in the local newspaper. When it emerged this time last year that this was going to cost three billion, there was serious consideration given to dropping the entire thing mm. there, amongst ministerial level. And there was a decision made that that was just not politically possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a big part of the reason why, why it went ahead. Um, Martin Hayden, the chair of the party, said that to start again could take five years. And I think it does show the position the Fine Gael, uh, are in and were in. You either plough ahead with this project at the cost that it is because you've gone so far down the road or you ditch it and you face the ire of rural voters. And Fine Gael in particular, very, very aware of their standing in rural Ireland. Um, and they're, they're facing pressure in urban areas because of the housing crisis and they certainly didn't want to do away with potentially that portion of the vote. So you'll see a lot of this coming up in the, in the next election because Fianna Fáil said that they wanted a cost-benefit analysis of the plan and they weren't necessarily on board with the signing of the contracts. So you can right. expect to see that in election literature, something along the lines of Micheál Martin didn't want to give you your broadband. We were the ones who signed the plan. Mm-hmm. And the last thing I'll say on this is my colleague Pat Lee had a piece during the week where he talked about how Fine Gael want to portray that it's them who's give, who are giving this investment that they are giving this to rural Ireland it's not it's you it's the taxpayer it's your money and they're taking a punt with that money um, so you know maybe you'll be back in studio again in 10 years uh, with, oh, an, with another crystal ball prediction be, hopefully tears around the country yes. uh, the only thing is that it could be beneficial in other ways uh, in reduction in traffic people are working mm-hmm. uh, remotely mm-hmm. and all uh, of yeah, that there's a European commission every year the European commission does a study on how small businesses around Europe are getting on and every year it shows that uh, Irish small firms when they have access to infrastructure and broadband outsell, out-export out-e-commerce if you excuse the verbs there um, uh, their rivals in Europe when they have access to decent broadband, so um, I, 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 we, we tend to look at these things. We we tend to sort of suspect that there's stroke politics going yeah. on a lot of the time. I mean, I'm guilty of that uh, uh, as well. There's some commentary, for example, today that Michal Martin was quoted as saying in the Dáil that he thought it was essentially a by-election stunt to sign the contract at that time. I mean, even for us, that's cynicism taken to quite an extreme. There is another side to this. And if you try, and I know it's difficult to step back and look what's actually being done here, yeah. even if it costs a lot of money, this is actually a far-sighted piece of infrastructure. OK, yeah, well, know. can you? And, and that's your point about electrification. It is. I mean, this is central for the future of the country and to seek to reverse rural depopulation and to maintain people outside of the major cities. This is, this is policy objectives beyond just uh, the ability of people to do business from their homes in, in rural Ireland and uh, even though Colin McCarthy uh, the former chair of board SNP as we'd, uh, he'll always be known uh, is in his article today in the Sunday Independent is is, is very um, a bit cynical about it really in, in terms of the economics of it and the cost of it and the fact that consultants can be brought in pretty well to prove anything that you ask them to prove Well I mean uh, there's great evidence well, for that Well he did say that he said that Dublin is home to a most obliging stable of these consultants and uh, they can pretty well consult and you tell them what you want till you get a consultant's report yeah. that's as he rather and cynically says you can call it independent that's right um, but as he said the opposition parties have criticised the decision making process but they have no serious proposals to replace it Danica? No just on the politicisation of, of, of the issue uh, just and following on from what you were saying about Micheál Martin I did note a question in the Dáil where he asked 
for you know for confirmation from the shock whether private companies who got this contract did not provide information to the Fine Gael party prior to the contract being signed. And what I think they were worried about, there's a suspicion among some in the opposition, is that this information is known to Fine Gael, so an election leaflets they'll be able to say in advance this is going to be brought into your area. Uh, before mm-hmm. other parties would know of it, and and that was asked of mm. of the minister, and there was no response. So that also left this hanging in the air. It yeah. also leads to incredible cynicism. Well, well, yeah. there, there is one political uh, element to the rollout of this. There's a thing before the actual houses, the five hundred forty thousand rural houses are connected. There's a thing called a broadband connection point. There are three hundred of those going to be installed around the country in libraries and yes. schools. Now, and I things. asked who chose the three hundred, and it's the government. That they chose, they choose the three, the three. So they will. Uh, they have dispersed those. There's a list online. You can go online and see where they yeah. are. Um, there's some of them on islands as well. Um, and yeah. but they choose where those points are. They do not choose where the first homes to be connected will be. I mean, I think there's uh, parts of Cork, Kilkenny, one or two other places are being, we'll see the first homes connected. But that's solely down to the company. That is not down right. to the company. Having said that, though, the ink had barely gone dry on the contract and there were general elect- Fine Gael general election candidates talking oh, about absolutely. their area, ministers out on social media. It was barrage immediately. So there is a huge okay. political element. Well, clearly the opposition parties would never have done that. You know. Of course <laughs> not. We both said that. Of course, of course, of course. I, gosh, the old cynicism grows and grows and grows. And another one that um, that causes cynicism is the uh, question of insurance. And the Business Post, page 12, Minister aims to limit payouts for top five injury claims. They also We also have in the mail, Bailey battles on but no moral case. Sindo, the uh, lesson of Alan Farrell and the lost art of saying nothing. And it was you, Danica, uh, that picked that one out. So I'll start with you on that. Yeah, it, it was more um, an interesting take, um, I guess, connecting uh, the the present troubles of uh, Prince Andrew and Marie Bailey and that of uh, Deputy Farrell and the conclusion was is that sometimes it's best to say nothing Uh, this notion that you can somehow clear the air or draw a line in the sand by this uh, seminal interview um, has proved to be misplaced But you remember Ben Dunn Mm -hmm. out hands up I I, I did it I'm sorry I apologise I did it unequivocally and it was gone yeah, it depends. The the public do have an appetite sometimes for a confessional interview. But the problem, for example, with Prince Andrew and I think Maria Bailey to a certain extent was that there wasn't, from the public's point of view, sufficient evidence of an apology of contrition. Yeah. And 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 that was, I think, the problem there. Whereas again, by by simply saying nothing, uh, you you kind of you deprive the story of oxygen and and it dies because journalists ultimately will leave you alone if you keep giving them the same standard reply that this is something in the past it's already been dealt with, and and perhaps that's what. Prince Andrew should have done, who I see in the papers, the Queen has cancelled his 16th birthday bash. I mean, it's really terrible times for Prince Andrew. And if he hadn't given that interview, he would still be, you know, the patron of all these people who are now... He turned himself into a pariah with one of the, and I think it'll be, you know, media skills people will talk for decades about 
the great disastrous interview. It was unbelievably bad, mm. and uh, and it, you know, it just got worse as it went on. But it also shows like it's the absurdity of the whole idea of monarchy. I mean, like you know, it's it's like what do you do with an unemployed monarch? You know, now that he's like withdrawn from public duties, so to speak. I mean, the the bizarre thing is that had Charles been born a girl, this would be a constitutional crisis because Andrew would be next in line to the throne. We'd have to wonder about you know was there a line of succession to the British throne, and we'd be back to maybe a nineteen thirty six situation with Wallace Simpson about would we need a replacement monarch and all of these things. And I think that, you know, Brexit, I know I've mentioned the first time now uh, on the programme Brexit, but Brexit <laughs> has, 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 um, has, has made people think about a lot of fundamentals in British politics. And, you know, with the Queen now reaching 94 years of age, there's a lot of worry She's about... She's an amazing woman, she is, isn't she? Um, but she is an oasis of stability in what is a very, very developing storm. And there's a lot of fears about how the monarchy will survive, if it can survive, if it can refashion itself after her passing, which will inevitably come. And this kind of scandal kind of gives oxygen to that or yeah. you know, gives ammunition to that worry uh, among, we'll say, the monarchists. Obviously, uh, it's, it's, it's fuel to Republicans like Jeremy Corbyn, who said that the monarchy is in need of, of improvement. Well, I mean, uh, you feel sorry for them on one day. Not an awful lot, but like when... Boris Johnson went up to the palace to the Queen uh, to dissemble whatever to the House Commons. Like it was discovered, it was found by law that that was the wrong thing to do. But she doesn't have an ounce of say in it. And then he writes out this speech for the Queen's speech, and she parrots it off. I mean, you wonder about the point of it. About the the monarchy, yeah, I think the monarchy it, it still seems to hold a, an affection, a place in the affections of the British. There are a lot of countries in Europe, you know, particularly northern Europe, that are still uh, monarchies. Um, it, it there is it, it, it's something quaint and historical, and it, you know it's the good idea for tourism. Yeah, it's good for tourism. The idea is you become a symbol, a unifying symbol in the country. Um, I, I lived in Belgium. I was in Brussels for a number of years, and I remember the the political parties were, the governments were always falling apart, but the monarch was seen as, as this figure that rose above it and kind of held the country together, right. which is a very difficult country to hold together, Belgium. Um, but certainly in terms of, um, it's a great romance, look at the crown, you know, I mean, it is, the, the, the Netflix figures are, you know, are, are shooting up again as, as, they, as they show that. Yeah. So it, 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 it's an emotional thing rather than intellectual thing. You can't really rationalise it, but emotionally people feel a connection. Jennifer? To be honest with you, I've never really understood the the monarchy or the affection that that is held for it. It just seems like such an outdated institution, mm-hmm. for want of a better phrase. Um, and but I do agree, there is a huge amount of um, adoration is the wrong word, but yeah, um, affection for for the monarchy in the UK. But I, it's it's an interesting time when you see the interview that that Prince Andrew gave and and you know how the monarchy deals with the media, how they deal with kind of the change, the fact that everything is online now. It's a different it's a different landscape mm-hmm. in so many so many different ways so I mean that interview in particular was uh, as a journalist uh, just astounding I mean uh, and you made the point earlier on about sometimes it's better to say nothing I think that the public appreciate it when an interview is unequivocally sorry if people feel if someone is kind of half saying sorry it's actually well, worse. you didn't say sorry at all. <laughs> well, that's a fair point. Fair point. But in, in the case of Maria Bailey, you know, or, or the people who've given interviews, there's a real sense if you, if you don't give the full apology, if you give somewhere halfway in between, that seems to be when yeah. things go terribly yeah, wrong. that's right. Mm. I, that, yes, I think Ashley. it ties into, the, I suppose, the national debate that's on at the, at the moment um, in terms of Verona Murphy. And Brendan O'Connor had a very interesting piece in... in 
um, the Sindo this week where he kind of when you think about it the comments that she made around we'll say these you know the, the, the immigrants and the, their connections um, with ISIS and then within a short period of time to do a complete turnaround and say sorry I didn't mean to say those things like uh, you know he he makes the point he was saying that she said these things in a political interview setting as a candidate she said those things in an attempt to get people to vote for her and she thought there were acceptable things for a politician to say and she thought there were things that might encourage people to vote for her um, so it's like how you can do a full we'll say a full U-turn on it like you either I suppose if you have beliefs do you stand over those beliefs or, or you know why did she say them and then turn like is it is it actually a credible apology does she really mean it um, and then it comes back to you know the other point you were making about um, if you you know not to say anything at all and then I suppose um, Hazel Chu is a very good piece um, in the paper again today and she says that simply ignoring racism will not make it go away Yeah. Um, so that you know okay perhaps she hadn't quite transitioned properly out of you know the culture the fact that she was involved in you know transport and it's a big issue for them but even uh, there was some commentary in yesterday's paper saying that you know it is a local issue um, there is a lot of transport and trucking industry down around the Wexford area um, and that it will get the local votes and then some people even commented in, in some of the commentary they were kind of saying that they weren't happy the fact that she did apologise because you know she either stands over yeah, her well, comments or she doesn't. The choice of language was was you know amazing and about the three year old children, but ages and ages and ages ago, like years ago, uh, she was in with some truck drivers in studio, and they were talking about their difficulties with people getting into the backs of their mm. trucks because they were held responsible, and these they, these people are, are very under great pressure and they're very clever but and quick and you're responsible if it's in the back of your but truck. That, that's a very reasonable point for her to make representing the truckers yes. but she was going far beyond that. She was making a social point. She was making it for political purposes. Brendan O'Connor is really quite withering um, in his piece today. Uh, he says when Verona, uh, this is in the Sunday Independent, when Verona Murphy's votes are counted next week we will not know how many of these votes she got for her recent disgraceful comments about yeah. migrants. We don't know how much of a xenophobia bovis, but we will sure Fine Gael will benefit by getting votes they might not, not otherwise have got from people with ugly attitudes to outsiders. It is I, I, there is a question now about whether in fact and I think people will be looking to see how well she does we won't know for but certain we, as Brenda O'Connor says point. We, we won't, won't know, know how well she says yeah. but people will interpret it in ways. But, is, yeah. this, is this is there dog whistle politics creeping into Irish elections? There, there definitely is dog whistle politics coming into Irish politics there's a piece in the Sunday Business Post today I think it's Aidan Corkery has it and he starts, it's, he's on the Dublin Midwest by-election trail and he starts the piece by, with a, uh, a voter there and the quote is, I'm not a racist, but dot, dot, dot. And I think that there are some politicians now who know that there are people on the doorsteps who will start a conversation with the words, I'm not a racist, but... And they want in some way to try and send a, a little mild signal to, to them yeah, that but they're somehow on, on their wavelength. We'll be talking about direct provision uh, in the second half of the programme, but if you are the person who says, I'm not a racist, but, or I'm not a whatever, but, if you button them down and censor them and you're not in a position to see what their fears were, say, in some of the towns where um, the places were were rejected. And if you just say, 
you're racist. Mm. Shut up. Go away. You you won't find out what's going on. No, but it doesn't on. necessarily have to be that kind of black and white, that binary. You don't have to have, an, you know, uh, just one position or the other. There's, a, there's yeah. an entire spectrum Well, uh, that's there. the point, mm. you know, and, is and, how you get at that. And, and if you're choosing to give an interview... Uh, in in a political interview context, and you're using those words and you're referring to those kind of ideas, it's a bit naive for us to think that there isn't an awareness there of the kind of triggers that that you know that they will uh, uh, set off. Yeah. I, I would imagine. Now you okay. you know. Okay, uh, I'm going to go uh, to you, Donegal, for a quick word. Then I'm going to take a break. Then we're going to come back to where we started, which was on false insurance claims. So you wanted yeah, to come just, in. just that there's a difference between ordinary citizens who are untutored in you know media interviews, you know, saying these things, and a public representative who's yes. looking for public office. And it's also important to look at the international context. It's very interesting that during the prime ministerial debates in Britain uh, during the last week, Boris Johnson was asked by a member of the audience to apologise for things that he wrote, for example, uh, describing people who were wearing burqas as letterboxes or bank robbers, and he pointedly refused. Mm. And Trump similarly has been asked to apologise for different things. And it's almost like in the international uh, stage, some people are too big to apologise. And that's obviously has a ripple effect yeah. in smaller polities like it our makes, own. Yeah, and makes things uh, acceptable that otherwise wouldn't be. Listen, I'm going to have to take a break. Uh, with us in studio this morning, Donoghue back on, Ashling, Meehan, Adrian Weckler, Jennifer Bray, and Ken Murphy. Podcast the Marion Finucane Show at rte.ie slash radio. Now, welcome back to the programme. I'll go through the list of uh, those running in Wexford. Uh, Cinnamon Blackmore, Solidarity People Before Profit. Malcolm Byrne, Fianna Fáil. Jim Codd, Enthu. Uh, Karen Dubsky, Green Party, Charlie Keddy, Independent, George Lawler, uh, Labour, Verona Murphy, Fine Gael, Johnny Methan, Sinn Féin and Melissa O'Neill, the Irish Freedom uh, Party. Now, uh, the Supreme Court Chief Justice was talking uh, about looking at the Book of Quantum and obviously... uh, people will be watching this with great interest about what happens uh, in the business of insurance claims, false insurance claims, valid insurance claims and the cost of insurance. So I'm going to start with you on that, Ashling. Yeah, um, there was, interestingly, actually, there was a piece on Ear to the Ground this week and covering the very issue. So as it affects farmers and rural folk, um, and they actually documented a, a, a farmer, Rosalind Fairbrother, um, and she was running a bog run, a creche, a play school, a pet farm, and a school bus. So, which is very important. Busy woman. A very busy lady. But, like, it is very important now um, outdoor leisure activities with farming, they go hand in hand, you know, in terms of extra income. Um, and she was telling the tale whereby typically her insurance costs about €4,000 per annum. Um, and when she went to renew last year, um, it had shot up to 21,800. It's abs- staggering, isn't it? Absolutely horrifying, horrifying. So like either it's too expensive and people can't afford to, to, to take it out or they can't get it at all. Um, and it really affects uh, rural communities, um, you know, even in terms of um, playgrounds you know most villages now and towns in rural Ireland have playgrounds but some of them now are being boarded up because they can't afford to take out the insurance um, 
Um, so there was there was a, an interesting piece in the Sunday Independent this year. I really like, or sorry, today, Connor Skihan wrote it. Um, and it was about taking personal responsibility. Um, and, you know, that's where kind of I stand on it, that, you know, people have to exercise reasonable care. Um, and, OK, there is a debate, you know, I suppose, and, and Ken can give the party line from the Lost Society point of view. Um but he, you know, he's, he has said that any debate about how to deal with this issue will need to look beyond the usual suspects, the lawyers, the insurers and the compensation seekers. We as a society will need to change attitudes to the blame game and accept that each of us will need to do more to cultivate and accept, accept the role of personal responsibility when trying to deal with this. So people need to take personal responsibility for it. But, but they don't if you can make a few bob. And that that's part of it. I mean, like when you look at in an in an Irish setting that uh, you can get maybe four and a half times roughly the amount that you get in the UK for soft tissue injury, of course. And even, you know, on that programme, Minister Michael Darcy was, you know, he <coughs> alluded to the fact that this was driving plaintiffs to make um, claims for modest injuries. Um, so there, there, I, you know, would suggest that there is some association with right. that. Um, but at the end of the day, it's just, you know, from a, 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 you know, a personal point of view, you know, where you're a farmer or you're someone living in rural Ireland, it's very frustrating because you take out insurance and, you know, sometimes I'd have farmer clients and they'd contact me and um, just kind of because essentially, as you can appreciate, the insurance company solicitor generally takes over the running of the, the, case. the case and the control is taken out of the hands of the individuals involved and the case is often settled and there's a, a concept there called you know um, in terms of nuisance money yeah. and then there's always a risk obviously if you run a case that you might that lose, you lose it, it and that you're going to get stung for costs and when you go into court that's when the costs really escalate so that but then at the end of the day it's the farmer or the rural person that has to pick up the tab when the insurance costs increase at renewal at the next term, even yeah. though they haven't any real say in the how the the claim right. is processed. Okay, and uh, well, a judge uh, recently, uh, reportedly, uh, was criticising criticising lawyers uh, and doctors, by the way, as a fraudulent claim case is dismissed by the court. Um, this was Mr Justice Michael Toomey and he talked about claimants' cases as exaggerated and criticised lawyers for taking them on in the first place. Ken, <coughs> party well, line now, it really? The, yeah. I know it's a party line or uh, it was being referred to by Ashling as a party line, but in fact it isn't only being explained, explained by the law society. Could I just point out another judge, actually a more senior judge, the, uh, uh, in terms of the uh, head of the High Court uh, personal injury list, Mr Justice Cross, was quoted in the Business Post, the then Sunday Business Post recently, um, as he says, the insurance industry is being fundamentally dishonest in claiming that our compo culture is to blame for the rise in insurance costs. Uh, the word of a vested gr- interest group has been uh, trotted out without adequate scrutiny. But he's, he's not alone and we're not alone in that. The last time I was in this studio, it was shortly after um, Pierce Doherty TD had done a forensic cross-examination of three uh, CEOs in, in, in the Oireachtas insurance company CEOs, which utterly exposed um, their position in relation to fraudulent claims, so much so that I believe that that video of that has been seen half a million times. It was just so devastating in terms of, its, uh, in terms of what he... But also, the European Commission currently is investigating suspected breaches of EU competition law in the, Irish, in the insurance industry in Ireland. 
In Ireland uh, itself, the Competition uh, and Consumer Protection Commission, the old Irish Competition Authority, is also investigating other aspects of, of believed anti-competitive behaviour. Um, the Central Bank has but recently if, if launched an investigation of differential pricing. Yeah. There's a lot of questions there being asked questions. and not many answers yeah. being given by the insurance industry. No, but, there, but it would seem to be the case that people take fraudulent cases to make a few bob. Jennifer, can I well, go to you on that? Yeah, I mean, and that, that is a, 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 a real problem. There's a kind of cultural shift needed. So there's a there's a reluctance or a reticence for of, amongst uh, the public to actually report cases of fraud where they see them for various reasons. And then there's a reluctance to uh, go after cases where they're found um, to potentially be fraudulent. So there's two things there as well. Um, the Business Post has a story in the paper today where it talks about as well how the Book of Quantum on the top five personal inju- injury uh, cases will be reduced significantly next year. Um, they say they hope to see a reduction in premiums for businesses pretty soon after. The timeline being given is the end of March and the Personal Injuries Board will look at what those top injuries are. And this comes on the back of the Chief Justice, Frank Clark, who this week announced that he's uh, moving ahead with that Personal Injuries Committee made up of judges and it's going to uh, start its work immediately. That's being viewed as somewhat of a game changer. It is significant that there is actually work. We've heard talk about this for years. You hear it in the doll every week, but finally we're seeing some movement and some action. Now, I'm not too sure what the timeline for for that body of work is, but it can't come soon enough for, for the businesses that are, that are mentioned mm-hmm. in the panel. He seems to be a get on with it and do it now sort of mm. person. Um, Frank Clark, will there be a, a, a problem if the judges are telling the politicians to change the law or the politicians telling the judges to change their judgments. You know that, that separation line. of powers. Yes. Well, yeah. this, this is uh, under new legislation, the judicial um, um, uh, the, the new body that's yeah. been set up to, to represent the judges. Um, and, but this, has been, this was added on um, at the end of the legislation. Legislation has been um, promised for some years for the Judicial Council. Um, but the intention is to recalibrate, as it says, certain um, personal injury and this is based on the personal injury uh, commission uh, report um, but I think it is also worth bearing in mind there are only two things that are going up in this um, there is the level of premiums which are going up and you can only have nothing but sympathy for the people who are who are suffering the increases in premiums of putting their future businesses at work the other things that are going up are the insurance industry profits I have it here. The 17 general insurers, this is the figures, the most recent figures from June of this year. The 17 general insurers in the Irish market made operating profits of a whopping 227 million euro in the most recent uh, year uh, year for which they were. I've heard their spokespersons on Mm -hmm. saying that this is to compensate for the losses that they made in previous years. Everybody has a side. Let me just give you one other statistic from the Central Statistics Office. From the years 2013 to 2016, uh, the level of increase in motor insurance premiums was an astonishing 70%. 70%. That was at a period when awards were actually falling and costs were falling. So the idea that the costs and and levels of awards in Ireland fully explains the increases in insurance premiums, it does not. And yet there is a significant problem, though, with the levels of 
Awards. My colleague, uh, Charlie Weston, does mm-hmm. an awful lot of uh, work on this mm-hmm. uh, in the Irish Independent, and he is uh, blue in the face pointing out the awards. A, a child will slip, um, you know, inside a cafe, hurt his thumb and get 50,000 euro, or, uh, you know, or, or sorry, 10,000 euro. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I definitely agree. Ashling was dead right to bring up that point about personal responsibility. Mm, I, mean, I agree. Wh- whatever about insurers. Mm. And the legal industry does have its part in all of this, mm-hmm. uh, to, to be fair. Um, you know, wh- when I was a kid, we went on a boating holiday down the Shannon. My mother slipped, in- uh, uh, sprained her wrists, got a cup of tea, you know, had mm. to have a cast on, but didn't think that much more um, about it. These days, uh, the, the, the message from your legal advisor is but, you should definitely... Well, go the, and try and get money. People go to the legal advisors having had the injury. Um, so it isn't as if, um, you know, the lawyers create the injuries. I mean, they go to uh, the... But we have ambulance chasing too. Uh, you know, I think that, again, yeah, is exaggerated. I mean, I think ultimately it's a cultural thing in Ireland that people feel if they have... And, but the fact is that these are rights that people have. And you cannot bring a claim unless there is actual negligence. You can't just fall over and sue somebody. There has to be negligence which has caused the injury. There also has to be medical evidence uh, that there has been an injury. And that has to be capable of standing up in court and, you know, cases are withdrawn. But there is an exaggerated... The interesting thing was when in front of the Oireachtas Finance Committee, the insurers were saying that 20%, they estimated 20% of all the personal injury claims, the claims they had to face, were fraudulent. When Pierce Doherty drilled down into this on their own figures, they were reporting less than 1%, sometimes a tenth of 1%. So there's a, a great deal of false and exaggerated claims about false and exaggerated claims. Well, on that though, I mean, I, I might just point towards a study uh, last month. Uh, it, was, it was by the Matter Hospital, and it found that over ninety percent of patients with whiplash attending the the pain management mm-hmm. clinic failed to return for additional treatment um, once their legal action was completed. And one commentator said that uh, whiplash in Ireland is often cured by, and I quote, an application of cash to the affected area. Well, <laughs> I think, it, but it's natural. People go for pain management. That is not a permanent situation. You're, it says you're, a lot. But you know, no, the the but uh, it was in the, that uh, the treatment ceases. Sorry, Ken, mm. That particular one that Jennifer is is. Mm. Um, referring to was just indelibly tied yeah. one to the other. It was quite a small study, yeah. though, but it was, but it is the case that people don't go for pain management forever. They go for pain management and it ceases after a while when they get the training. And so once their legal action is complete. It's not just premiums rising, it's people not being able to get cover. A friend of mine in Belmont mm. runs a water adventure uh, uh, a tour and he has had to withdraw that service in the last 12 months not because the premiums went up but because he now no longer can get insured at all yeah uh, I mean it. I, it, it is wrong and clearly there's a dysfunctional insurance market in this country there's a lack of competition there's a lack of market entrance but interestingly the competition regulators are asking why is that the case and their focus is on the insurance industry and its market performance there's one just one voice let me just mention one last thing there is a voice that is never heard in this debate uh, this that is the voice of the victim of insured, the innocent victims of accidents and certainly if the judicial uh, council are going to be listening to it should not be completely dictated by the insurance industry and the defence interest uh, the victims of accidents have a legitimate voice to be heard as well yeah, just, just to follow on on that like absolutely and like references made to Charlie Weston and I enjoy reading his articles as well but he certainly I think he picks out the 
you know, the, the, the ones that are just off the wall um, a lot of the time. And there is lots of, you know, there are a lot of well, off, well, there are a lot of off the wall cases. Uh, well, like there's, on there's the wall or off there the is, wall if they're real. But like we've, we've seen coverage on, on the news of like essentially like when you bring these kind of claims, it's to bring you back into the position that you were before mm-hmm. the accident or whatever, whatever it was. And a lot of the times it never does. And when you look at, you know, medical negligence and cases such as that, like you can't help but, um, you know, feel that no matter what amount of money has been paid out, it's never going to restore the person to the position they were beforehand. But just another point I just wanted to make was um, just in that uh, case that you alluded to, Marion, um, the judge said in that case, he he said that that case illustrated how unmerited, unmerited claims were appealed by plaintiffs with no money to force the defendants into settling. So that's part of the problem as well in that they've nothing to lose. Because we'll say in terms of the, we'll say if they, if you are appealing, um, that if you lose the case, typically the costs follow the action. Yeah. So that, um, you know, that if they don't have the means in order to pay the costs, well, kind of tough look. They might what what look at then you look at their assets. They might have a house, but in other with businesses or be it you know small family businesses or farms, etc., they typically do have assets and significant assets, um, which they use obviously in, in their business, but they can be gone after um, oh, if right. they do lose a case. So yeah. there's more risk there for people um, such as such as farmers and landowners. Right. Right. But bringing a case is not risk-free. You can, if you lose it, and very few very few cases actually go to court. The great majority are, are settled at an earlier stage. But if you do lose it, you can have the costs of the other side, you know, against you uh, and you will end up with debts and that perhaps very should be pursued painful. more. Yeah, yeah. Donoghue? You don't have a view on it, that's mm. okay. Um, because we're going to have to go uh, to the newsroom. We're just, no, we're going to have a break and then we're going to go to the newsroom. Podcast The Marion Finucane Show at rte.ie slash radio. Now, uh, the issue of asylum seekers coming to Ireland has been continuing to fill space in newspapers all this week with a the group of 14 men and then there were less and two boys and now it's one boy uh, found in a trailer on a ferry bound for Rosslair thankfully all alive. Uh, to the best of our knowledge they had applied for asylum and were thought to be entering into the direct provision system and on Friday uh, Jennifer Bray of the Irish Times who of course is with us today as part of the panel had a story that the Department of Justice has issued tender docu- documents to find accommodation for 5,500 asylum seekers around the country with a budget of $320 million a year. Now we're joined in studio by the Chief Executive Officer of the Irish Refugee Council. I was going to go to you first on this, Jennifer, to go back over what it is the Department of Justice is doing um, before we got into the nitty gritty of it. But I suppose on the day that's in it, Nick Henderson, I have to ask you, what happened to the Kurdish men? Yeah, it seems that they, uh, from the report in the Sunday Times at least, that uh around eight, I think, men have left uh, the centre in Dublin at which they were being accommodated. Uh, That's the reports that we have, at least, um, and that they may have tried to travel to the UK. Um, First of all, it was good to hear that they were given access to the asylum procedure in Ireland over the weekend. That's really important. Um, And let's not forget, uh, in 2001, um, 
eight people died in Wexford in a, in a lorry, including oh, two, yes. We've uh, seen two, two young children. Yeah. So they were given access to the asylum procedure, but a small number seemed to have moved on. Um, that We may get more reports on that during the day. When you say access to the asylum procedure, what does that mean? That means that they would have come from Wexford to Dublin. They would be accommodated because it was the weekend. They'd probably be accommodated over the weekend and either tomorrow morning, Monday, they'd go to the International Protection Office uh, on Mount Street in Dublin, and they would begin the asylum procedure. Uh, and that would. And how does that all work? Are there trans people there to translate, transport, all of that? How yeah. does that work? So they would be, if they needed an interpreter, and many do, they would uh, have access to one. They would have a short preliminary interview. Uh, with staff at the International Protection Office which would ask them some basic questions about their name, nationality and why they are claiming asylum. Uh, They would be accommodated, or at least they should be accommodated, in Belseskin, which is the reception centre in North Dublin. Uh, And then they would be probably... uh, dispersed to a direct provision centre somewhere else in the country. One of the phenomenons that we've witnessed in the last year, though, is that there's been a huge increase in emergency accommodation. So hotels and B&Bs in various shapes and sizes across the country. There's now 1,500 people uh, in such accommodation, which is, uh, in our experience, very problematic. So they could be in that sort of, right. uh, type of accommodation. And would there be a policy, say, if they were all Kurdish, which I understand they were, yeah. um, to keep them together? In other words, not to disperse them, you go here and you go there, because, like, for any emigrant or immigrant, mm. you like to have contact with your own. I mean, I don't mean in ghettos, but, like, in the United States or in London, Irish people took support from one another. That may be a policy consideration by the government, but in reality, at the moment, uh, we have very few uh, beds in direct provision. Direct provision is a system uh, is full and hence our reliance on emergency accommodation. So as we see it on a day-to-day basis, the Department of Justice are accommodating people where there is a a vacancy, where there's a bed, so they may not be kept together. Uh, In terms of why the the smaller group moved on, and we don't know this for sure, we don't even know that they've gone to the UK, but um, there may be family there that they have, uh, and it's important to emphasise as well that and this is a, a misconception about refugee law often that somebody must claim asylum in the first country in which they are in or the first safe the, country. The Dublin Convention. Well, that's, that Dublin Convention is slightly different. The, there's nothing in the Refugee Convention, which is a 1951 document which we've got in Irish law that says that somebody should claim asylum in the first safe country. Did, did uh, the that... Dublin regulation does, though, allow member states to send people back to the first country of asylum. But the, the, somebody's asylum claim shouldn't, in our opinion, uh, be treated any differently just because they didn't claim asylum in that first country. Right, OK. Listen, can I go back to what you were writing about, um, Jennifer, during the week? Yeah. Um, Tell me what the department is doing in this now. Sure. So the the Secretary General of the Department of Justice wrote to the Public Accounts Committee earlier this month and he was talking about basically the direct provision system and and the capacity. Um, He pointed out that there is 1,531 asylum seekers currently in emergency accommodations in hotels, guest houses, um, because of that lack of space that you mentioned in the direct provision system. And he said that he's highly aware that it's an unsatisfactory situation and it can only be 
short term. So in order to find additional space in the system and find new centres, as he put it in the letter, um, the department were going to do this regional procurement process. So this started last December. And what it basically involved was a series of tenders going out uh, through the public procurement service to find these new centres. Um, I dug down into the, the tenders. There are eight of them. They cover pretty much the entire country. Um, and they are looking for f- space for five and a half thousand spaces. When, when you say they pretty well cover the country, do mm. you know what towns or villages they're near? I know the counties where, and I know the numbers that that are need to be accommodated in those counties, yeah. but not the towns or villages. And in his letter, the Secretary General said that that's commercially sensitive at the moment, but where there are new centres, there will be a series of community engagement. I should also point out that the department say those five and a half thousand places they're tendering for, they're not all new places. Um, and they're saying that some of the existing centres will have to tender in the future. So you'll have a mix of new centres, the current ones um, and there's also a series an attempt to improve the standards in existing centres so a lot of them will have to be refurbished. Right. Um, So that's where they're at at the moment. They're going to analyse those bids in in the next few weeks and you will find, um, like I said, some of the existing centres. They're looking for to house a minimum Mm. Uh, of 50 people. Yeah, because they do point out in the tenders that it is the minimum because there has been a massive increase this year in the number of uh, asylum applications that they've received and it's very, very hard to tell ahead of time what those figures will be in the coming years. Um, So they do say a minimum. Each centre will have to provide a minimum of 50 spaces and from the documents it shows that it is under that independent living model. When I say that, it's a system whereby basically whereby families can cook their own meals and, and look after themselves if they want to and these centres will have to have that there are also rules around the amount of people who can be in a certain room because we've seen criticism in the past of uh, people being in rooms with people they didn't know with only a curtain for privacy now I will say the government completely deny any claim that the direct provision system is inhumane but the accounts that we've heard over the last few years and um, some of them are pretty harrowing um, and the problem is well part of the problem is the housing crisis there, it, you know, of course yeah there's, there isn't that space to, uh, to build one other thing I would say is when there is talk politically of the direct provision system and the future of it, that is where the spotlight is. What is the future of the direct provision system? Now, those documents that I talk about, uh, they did put a price on the different contracts and altogether it's around 324 million. And the contracts last usually between two years uh, for the most of them. In one instance in Dublin, I think, uh, it's four years. So it's 320 million. I don't think anybody would dispute, well, Maybe some people would, but I personally think that there should be a proper quality of accommodation uh, for asylum seekers. Um, so I don't know if it, I wouldn't dispute the money, but it is a huge amount of money at a time when the government are yeah. under pressure to abolish yeah. the system. Yeah, the Jennifer's work in this is, Nick, is, is yeah. strong. And, yeah. uh, but it's worth mentioning this This does go back to the controllers and auditors general's criticism of how the government procured the direct provision system for the last 20 years. That's a report from 2016. And it criticised strongly the fact that uh, the Department of Justice uh, obtained accommodation through expressions of interest, uh, which were lacking uh, and didn't meet the requirements of the EU, EU procure- procurement. Um, so, so, sorry, just run that past me so, again. Yeah, so it, it, direct provision is delivered primarily by private yes. businesses. Yeah. And uh, up, and, up until now, really, the government has obtained that accommodation by engaging with 
private businesses. Who have the premises. Who have the premises, and that could be an old hotel, a building that they flipped for, for this purpose. They've procured uh, that accommodation using expressions of interest published in newspapers. That's been very problematic to, from our perspective because there's no transparency. So what this process that Jennifer has, has written about does, on the one hand, is good because it uh, establishes transparency transparency around yeah. the process. You or I or anybody can log on to eTenders, the government's procurement notice website, and see these notices uh, in, in quite substantial detail. Right. However, You preferred them run by NGOs. Uh, not necessarily NGOs, oh, no. but I think the starting point is 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 important. Well, at least housing non-profit housing bodies would be our ultimate desire. But it's important to, that we consider the criticism of direct provision as a system, political parties across the spectrum, um, ourselves as an organisation. But probably most importantly, uh, the Ombudsman for Children has criticised it. The Human Rights Commission has said that it's not in the best interest of children. Bernardos have said it, it um, is no place for children, and the former special. Rapporteur for Children, Geoffrey Shannon, said it should be abolished. Okay, have you any in, in your neck of the woods, Ashling? We do. We have one in Listy and Varna. Um, and Dr. Harty spoke about it during the week um, when he was saying, you know, there was a lot of public anxiety initially, um, but it has worked out very well and the local community are really embracing um, the, yeah. the, the people. Um, just just to, I suppose, um, follow on, just to point on it that I picked up and read the papers during the week. I think there's three out of the eight regional contracts have been awarded. Yes. And again, you know, we talk about the cost, but there's been massive cost overruns even in that. Like the Midlands one, it was estimated 11 million and the final contract awarded is now 27.6 million. Ah, Southeast, no. so It was yeah, estimated at 11. At 11. And it went to, and the final contract awarded was worth 27.6 million. <coughs> um, the South East, it was estimated at 28 million. The final contract awarded was 36.9 million. Now, the third one has actually come in a little bit lower, surprisingly. The Midwest, it was estimated at 15.7 and it's come in at 12 million. Um, so even, you know, there is substantial costs associated with it, but they're even, you know, the first yeah. three contracts that have been awarded have gone way over that. But what I will say is when I wrote the original piece, that 324 million I talk about actually includes those higher amounts. But obviously, if you go beyond that, that's only three of the eight contracts. The remaining ones, obviously, there was one that was a few million under budget. Uh, it would point towards... A, overruns might be well yeah it's over budget basically so if the rest of them go along that way you could be talking maybe closer to 400 million and in our experience there's actually probably few bidders who are interested in doing this type of work and that's why we've criticised this procurement process um, it, it, requesting 50 or more people we would say is uh, perpetuating congregated settings congregated uh, institutional living, when we've engaged with... Non what would you like? We would uh, see owned or accommodation uh, for a temporary basis during the person's asylum claim to be delivered by non-profit housing bodies uh, to allow for privacy and dignity while somebody has their asylum claim. Isn't and there a kind of a... I suppose like a perfect storm that if you take... Um, people coming into the country, while in principle there might be great welcome for them, uh, they say, well, why don't we house our own people? Yeah, and I think it's important to emphasise that the housing crisis that we have is nothing to do with immigrants. Or it's course. nothing to do with refugees. Yeah. It's due to long-term mismanagement of housing. Uh, and as we've spoken about already, these are quite substantial budgets that we're talking about. So you, let's use that money... 
there's a clear budget line for it, but let's use it in a different way. Right. And let's use it in a, through a non-profit model. Yeah. There's been huge expenditure on direct provision, but unfortunately it's gone to the pockets of uh, businesses. There's been no reinvestment back in the back into the to the state or from a public policy perspective. So there is another way of doing it, and this procurement process could allow for that or could have allowed for that. But the fact that it's 50 or more people risks perpetuating congregated settings. Uh, you're also required to have accommodation ready to go within 16 weeks. And when, again, when we've engaged with housing bodies, that's a very short time yeah. to turn around accommodation. Yeah. Uh, and... So it's it's a problematic process, and I know as well that the government have set up an advisory group. Uh, Catherine Day, the commissioner, is chairing that. Yes. Um, and we've made a submission to that uh, group saying, requesting that the terms of reference be amended yep. to include an analysis of potential alternatives yep. to DP. When they were starting with Listoon, Listoon Varna, um, was there communication with the local community or was it sprung upon them as a surprise? Um, I don't think there was initially and I think there was was there a press release we'll say during the week and like I must say as well Aidan O'Driscoll is kind of tasked with this this job and he's formerly from the Department of Agriculture and would have had dealings with him in that and he was exceptionally strong in his role in the Department of Agriculture so you'd hope he'd he'd be doing the best he is but he did in the press release that came out during the week they did say that there definitely would be more engagement when they do um, when they do do tender or when the contracts are finally awarded I think just another point just worth mentioning was that Jennifer you, you, you mentioned we'll say that the number of applications for asylum this year has been you know it's been quite high and um, it's the highest level since 2008 but the numbers are 3,762 when you think in the grand Turkey has taken in 4 million by comparison with most other European countries or many other European countries particularly southern European countries this is a drop in the ocean the numbers we're seeking to accommodate here and I think um, um, the instinct of most Irish people would be to welcome these people and to ensure that they're given good accommodation. Not luxurious accommodation, but good accommodation. And that should be part of the, the way in which we reach out to these people running from very, very distressing. I don't know if I agree Absolutely. with that, to be honest. I think it would be nice to think that everybody, that the vast majority of people feel that. And I, maybe the majority of people do, but I joined a Facebook group yesterday, um, which is set up expressly to... Um, I guess, protest at uh, different counties where new centres might open. And I spent an hour last night going through the comments and and the different posts, incredible number of posts over a 24-hour period. Some of the comments were just, I mean, I couldn't believe it. Some of them were just overtly racist and it was actually quite depressing. And I think there is more to this and there's the, the op- some opposition is absolutely valid if you're worried about if you have a small town and you have the exact same number of asylum seekers coming in of course you're going to worry about services mm-hmm. and that's where you need a programme of engagement but there is an underbelly here which is quite vicious and I think quite nasty and goes under the radar a lot of the time I've no doubt there is that's why this debate needs to be led um, and it needs to be led from the top and it needs to be led at every level of society and, and, and uh, I think Charlie Flanagan has been done, doing a very good job yeah. in relation to our articulating a principle position on this and to appeal to the better angels of the Irish people. Danica, you want to come in? We've we've never done this particularly well. I I remember my grandmother telling me about the Hungarian refugees who came to Limerick in 1956 when there was a a overthrow of the government and and a lot of people had to leave. And our foreign ministry at the time rather ostentatiously said we would house hundreds of them. And what happened in the end is that uh, we got ourselves redesignated as a a place of transition, not of destination, because the refugees actually didn't want to stay here. Many of them wanted to go on to Canada eventually. Some even went back to Hungary 
Hungary. Can you imagine? I mean, you're fleeing, you're fleeing kind of uh, revolutionary terror and you, you have to go back again. We had refugees staying with us in Newmarket and Fergus, actually, in the 1980s from Somalia uh, for over a year. I think they aroused some interest in Newmarket and Fergus in the 1980s. But they ultimately went to the UK as well. And part of me all, sometimes wonders um, if, if the situation is deliberately made to be intolerable, that, you know, it's almost like hoping that they will go elsewhere. Well, it's, the government have said as such in relation to the right, right to work uh, for nearly 20 years, that mm. people seeking asylum could not work. And it took uh, a high court, then a court of appeal, and then a Supreme, Supreme court, court challenge yeah. uh, that was opposed that each court by the government yeah. before Justice Donald O'Donnell finally recognised that yeah. people in the asylum process have, an, uh, have a constitutional right to work. I think it's worth emphasising that there in our experience, it has been local communities that have offered people a welcome, mm. often in spite of uh, the, the issues and problems around direct provision. Um, and communities in Uttarad or Akul or Ballinamore perhaps should uh, talk to their communities just down the road where there has been a direct provision yeah, centre. I, I, I would agree with that. Paddy O'Gorman, uh, O'Gorman had a very interesting radio piece in the Shauna Work show during the week. He went to uh, the Clondalkin Towers Hotel in Dublin. He was doing a piece on uh, direct provision. And the people he spoke to uh, who were being supported there, by and large, they were positive about their experience in terms of the welcome that they got from people yeah. on the street, from, from ordinary people. I heard a very similar report report this morning on News Talk. They're going to do a lot on it this week. And the, the the person that was doing the report said it came as a great surprise to him because he was presumed it was all dreadful. But some people not he wasn't saying it was wonderful, but you know Yeah the the I think the general message from the people that Paddy O'Gorman spoke to was that totally without regard to the actual centre itself, the welcome and the the attitude of people that they met locally was generally positive, was generally warm. And sometimes I do think we are swayed by some that there is now I mean Jennifer mentioned Facebook. Facebook and YouTube in particular are being used by a really mm. small fringe uh, uh, section of society and groups to try and whip up um, antipathy but, to, toward yeah. asylum seekers, toward towards immigrants. Mm. I actually think that it, it that is not representative of mm-hmm. how most people feel, and this is not just a kind of a Dubliner, you know, uh, you know, wet talking. liberal, yeah, wet liberal talking. When you actually talk firsthand, to first person to to people as Paddy O'Gorman did, it's not as bad a story as as we think. That the second point I would make, and I would probably be in a small minority in Ireland in this. I actually think immigration is good mm-hmm. for the long term health. Yeah. Of a country. I mean, if you think in famine in Ireland, we had roughly the same population as England, roughly the same, right? England now has 65 million people, we're still below five. Now, if you ask the person on the street, do you think we should go to 7 million, 8 million, 10 million? Most of them will, will, will pause or recoil from that. I happen to be uh, someone who thinks that is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. If, if we went to that, I also think we should plan for that. We need to build infrastructure. I mean, what we're talking about, the numbers here for us are tiny, tiny. three, three and a mm. half thousand people. Yeah. That is not a major issue. Germany took, how many Syrians did Germany uh, 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 take? It was up to the million. Up to the million. Yeah. And, and they have made that work for their country. I know that there is some political uh, unrest there, particularly in the East, but Germany is, now, is an industrial powerhouse. It understands that it needs people. Right. Japan is in an absolute mess. I was in Japan this time mm. last year. They won't let immigrants in. The population's dying. Yeah. So, I mean, the demographics are definitely a factor, but um, and there's no doubt that the, the numbers are very small and, there's, and this country has easily absorbed 
an awful lot of immigration from the European Union, from Poland and Lithuania and countries like that, where people have been welcomed and have contributed and formed communities. And yeah. I, I was suggesting the Poles should have their own team in the All Ireland. I mean, they really, in in the numbers that they have here, they're you know the size of counties and so on. Um, it, I was watching. Ireland's fittest family was on mm-hmm. yesterday and there was uh, one family now I didn't catch the name because I had the sound down mm. with extremely dark black mm. skin absolutely lashing in with the other families I was delighted to see it Well immigration is improving the country in my view and uh, yeah. we should welcome it Can I just also it may seem a long way away from where we are here as, as a country but the situation in the Mediterranean continues to be dire Yeah um, and let's pause and reflect uh, on the role of the Irish Navy that rescued 18,000 people. Um, but for yeah. uh, their actions, they would be they drowned, would be they would drowned. be dead. Yeah. Um, I, I struggle to think of a more significant humanitarian act that Ireland has t- undertaken. Yes, but if I could be a little bit cynical about this, as indeed some of the Italians are, <laughs> you know, we rescued, we, I say collectively, as, as I... And then we dropped them Indeed. off in in Italy. We, that didn't, was we cr- didn't bring them to Cove. No, and, no. I, and I don't think we. if that was the case, it wouldn't have happened. Um, but they did save lives. We brought a delegation of search and rescue organisations to Ireland two weeks ago. Uh, uh, a lady called Aoife Nimurku, who's a nurse for MSF Ireland, Médecins yeah. Sans Frontières, has done incredible work and witnessed terrible things in Libya and in the Mediterranean. We also had with us a young man who had travelled from Sudan through Libya, had made the crossing, travelled up through Italy to Calais and was one of the young people who was relocated from Calais to uh, Ireland. And uh, the president, Michael D. Higgins, had a reception for for the delegation. And in quite an incredible moment, this young man who has travelled and and witnessed such uh, terrible things, has been persecuted in his country, had a very meaningful and long conversation with the president uh, at the Aris. So Ireland does do some things well. Um, the Mediterranean are not in the in the in the. Yeah, uh, mind the, the you, Finn Gael voted. Indeed, and that was a that was a, a shameful vote and in the, in I, the and European Parliament. Indeed, and I struggled to. I, I just don't know how that could be uh, explained. For there was some statements around the fact that information would be have to be transferred to to other bodies or other organisations. But saving lives isn't a grey area. We either do it or we don't. Yeah, we have to oh. get beyond them and to him and her. Talk about individuals, individuals. and individual stories. Yeah, like that that one that you have just told us. Uh, Nick, thank you very, very much indeed for that. That was Nick Henderson, CEO of the Irish Refugee Council. And we'll take a break. Podcast The Marion Finucane Show at rte.ie slash radio. Welcome back to the programme. Just before I go to the next item, I just thought this was interesting. Marion, I'm a GP. And my stomach turns every time a solicitor's letter lands on my desk. The number is increasing. I rarely see any patient after their case is concluded. Also, it's very difficult for a GP to refuse to write a report when these are your lifelong patients. Why not insist patients see separate doctors? or something similar. whole load of stuff in on them. Marion, I think solicitors who take on these questionable cases should also have to pay a share of the costs and, and on and on and on. Uh, now, 
Uh, I want to go to a story that's been in the news uh, all week for the wrong reasons, I guess you could say. Uh, disaster start to winter. High water forecast again today. The citizens of Venice have been for the past week assessing the damage caused by recent floods. To talk us through the extent of that damage and what is being done to protect this most unique UNESCO World Heritage Site, I'm joined on the line uh, by Andre Rossini, who's a journalist with Rai Venito. I understand uh, there were high water uh, forecasts for this morning. Good afternoon to you, Andre. Did they come? Hi, Marion. Yes, correct. It was uh, 130 this morning at 9.30 Italian time, so quite bad. Although it was not uh, a disaster as it was on the night of the 12th of November. Uh, On the 12th of November, we experienced the worst flood ever. It was 187 centimetres above sea level, so 85% of the city was flooded with uh, gigantic uh, damage to to our heritage, uh, cultural heritage, and uh, the churches, the Basilica of San Marco, but also for uh, residents of Venice, it was a disaster because uh, quite practically all the houses were were flooded, and many of the uh, shops and restaurants and activities which are at the ground level. So uh, it was really bad. The mayor of Venice spoke about one billion euros in uh, in damage and you know the problem is that it was not only the uh, the severe flood of the 12th of november because as we were saying before we had a very bad flood also this morning so it's the pace of these floods because in the past we were used to having one very bad uh, flood for instance in in usually in, in november it happens but now we've had a series of floods above 150 centimeters which is very bad for venice and uh, this uh, doesn't seem to stop and so it's difficult to recover from this uh, continuous uh, flooding of of the city and uh, there are no there are no solutions unfortunately at reach um, can you tell me the circumstances of where you live yourself I live uh, uh, close to uh, close to, to the Academy of Fine Arts. It's uh, uh, the bridge of the Academy. Maybe uh, someone uh, knows this. Uh, Indeed, this yeah. Is, this is one of the four bridges that uh, uh, cross through the Grand Canal. The timber one, uh, yeah. The timber one, exactly. Yeah. I live not far from there, between that bridge and the and the Zatre. And uh, on the Zatre, we've had some huge uh, waves. Uh, in Venice, we're used to having, uh, you know, the high tide usually rises gently. We know beforehand the forecast, so we get uh, we prepare ourselves to uh, to the to the high tide. But the night on of, of the 12th of November, we've had uh, uh, very strong uh, winds, and we've had uh, uh, huge uh, waves breaking into. The the city and, and into uh, your and home it was also in my home yes also in my home the whole uh, the whole 
ground floor was uh, was flooded. And uh, usually when we have these alerts, uh, we create a small community of neighbors in the Calais, in, in the street. And uh, uh, we were there, you know, supporting each other with uh, coffee and everything. But uh, the barriers that we had uh, built to protect the, the, the houses or the shops from the water soon became uh, useless because they had called for uh, 145 centimeters above sea level. Right. And in fact, it, it, it became 187. So not a because, chance. You know, it was it was uh, horrible. I have a neighbor who who has an antique. Uh, uh, he sells uh, antique books and prints, uh, and he was uh, his uh, activity was uh, uh, devastated. You know the way the Venice Lagoon is uh, is made. We have three inlets, which co- which uh, are the communication between our lagoon and the Adriatic Sea, and those three inlets uh, all look towards uh, south uh, southeast. So there is this. Uh, wind, we call it the Scirocco, uh, when it blows from the south, it's a warm wind, it, uh, it has a great effect on the, on the tide. So um, the, the forecast was not able to, to, um, to, to, to forecast this, uh, this strong wind because it came at 100 kilometers an hour and uh, that created a, a disaster. Right. Uh, to, we have heard about the possibility of Venice, as it were, sinking into the ground or going into impossible decay for, you know, many, many years. And it, it, it strikes some of us as very odd because the experts tell us that those huge, massive cruise ships are constantly affecting the, um, the 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 bottom of all the buildings along the various canals that, that they go through. And, like, I know that there's money in it, but, you know, could they not be banned and left out uh, where they wouldn't do harm? You know, this is something that uh, everyone in, uh, in Venice or practically everyone is against these big cruisers coming in coming in the lagoon um, perhaps only uh, the persons who who work in for the port authority are in favor of these cruisers still coming in because they are the symbol of uh, uh, tourism which is unsustainable and that is creating uh, damage which is uh, horrible to our lagoon and to our city uh, the Italian government uh, uh, seven years ago when there was a, 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 a disaster in front of the island of uh, Giglio and said that uh, we have to find a new solution, an alternative solution for cruisers coming in uh, to the port of Venice. But still, uh, no solution has been found. There is debate. There are different uh, um, ideas about uh, how to keep these cruisers out of the lagoon. Some say they should come in, but from another Part not passing in front of St. Mark's, but still there is no there is no um, uh, there, there is no solution which uh, which will be uh, set forth. Right. So it's, unfortunately, it is still a debate and a very uh, sad debate because the majority, I would say, of Venetians are against this, and they they demonstrated also uh, with uh, big demonstrations against this. Cruises, but still they're coming. 
Money, 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 I presume. Um, of course. How long will it take for the levels to go down now, do you know? Well, the levels, uh, uh, the lagoon and the Adriatic Sea work uh, pretty much as communicating vessels. So every six hours the water comes in, every six hours it goes out. So we have two peaks during the day. Right. And usually these, these two peaks are acceptable uh, in, the, in the sense that uh, Venice is not, uh, is the paving of Venice is uneven. So we have some areas of the city, like for instance the St. Mark's Square, which are very low. And when you have, uh, I don't know, 900, 100 centimeters above sea level, already the water comes in. But uh, disaster, as it was on the 12th of November, that, that happens very yes. rarely. Although, although, as I was saying, the pace of these uh, uh, floods is, is becoming more frequent. Okay. So obviously it has to do with climate change and the rising of yeah. the sea level. Well, we must all worry about that. How many people are resident in Venice? We are 53,000 in, in the And in how the many city. tourists do you get per annum? We get 30 million each year. Wow. Yeah. That's an awful and lot. That, that's an awful lot, and it's uh, somehow changing the structure of the city because um, most of the shops uh, are turning into shops for tourists because if you are a private entrepreneur and you have to decide if you want to enter a market of 30 million or a market of 50,000, obviously you will, cho- you will yeah. choose the first one. And that makes it difficult for, uh, for, for residents. my family. We, yeah, we find it difficult to to find, uh, I don't know, a baker, a supermarket, and uh, um, I can well, the, the, I can well believe it. Yes, can you want to come in and then we'll go? Yes, I just had a question. One of the great concerns in this terrible, terrible story, because this is one of the most loved cities in the world, um, being uh, threatened in terms of its future, was in relation to the iconic Basilica of uh, San Marco itself, uh, and the question after the twelfth of November was. Is it possible that lasting structural damage could have been done to San, San Marco? Marco? Is what is the latest on that? San Marco was severely damaged because the water not only entered the Narteche, the, the front part of the cathedral, but it also entered inside the cathedral and the, uh, the force of the water was such that it destroyed the, uh, the small, uh, um, the small uh, windows uh, protecting the crypta. So the subterranean of the, of the cathedral was completely uh, flooded where the graves of the patriarchs are. And that was, I think it was the first time in history that that happened. But the uh, damage that the water makes does to, uh, to St. Mark's Cathedral, you cannot assess it immediately because the problem is uh, that that water is salty water. So that water stays on the mosaics and uh, slowly also it goes up. So it does not only flood. It does not. It does not only uh, damage the the ground, the, the pavement, but also the mosaics who are uh, on the uh, on the walls and on the top of the cathedral. Right. So the situation wa- was very bad for Saint Mark's, but also for other churches of the city. Of course. Listen. Thank you very very much indeed uh, for taking our call, and we wish you well uh, in the clean up and survival. Uh, I gather you're children though were happy enough because they couldn't go to school but that's another scale altogether. Anyway, Andrea Rossini, uh, thank you very much indeed for talking to us. 
podcast, The Marion Finucane Show, at rte.ie slash radio. Uh, I should say, in relation to the EU Parliament resolution that we mentioned earlier, uh, the Fine Gael MEPs said they believed it played into the hands of human traffickers and that it would create chaos on the high seas and put lives at risk. We've got two uh, very similar type uh, texts in. If politicians ignore people's genuine worries regarding immigration, they will do so at their peril. We have a right to ask questions without being branded as a racist. And another caller said, why is it that only those who are advocates for refugees stroke economic migrants are allowed to speak about this subject? Voices of concern uh, need to be heard too. And I think that was uh, more or less the view of uh, those who spoke here here today, uh, that, that if you silence stuff, you put it underground and you don't benefit uh, anybody by doing that. Now, let me go to you, Donico Bacon. You have taken your uh, professionalism to another length, bringing your children up north to let them experience elections. Oh, you can never, you can never get involved too, too uh, early. Um, yeah, no, it's just uh, when you have a family, you know, you spend your weekends in different ways. I like to, you know, make something that's interesting for all of us. So bring them to a new place, bring them to something that interests me professionally. Yeah. So I went yeah, to a number of constituencies in Northern Ireland just to follow the election campaign there because I think it's going to be a very seminal election. Yeah, the the coverage uh, today of the FOIL, you know, the old John Hume uh, seat. Tell us about that. Yeah, um, that seat was held by the STLP for 34 years. It's John Hume's old constituency. Mark Durkin held it, and it was lost to the S- or to the Sinn Féin party in uh, in the last election, in 2017, by a mere 169 votes. So that is kind of target number one for the STLP to get back, because the STLP have now no seats in Westminster, and of course because of Brexit, because of the very the parliamentary arithmetic there, abstentionism has become a core issue between the SDLP and Sinn Féin and indeed Colin Eastwood, that's his main platform in FOIL, uh, in Derry where I was yesterday, that he's more or less going to be a voice for uh, kind of the nationalist community in in uh, in Westminster. Uh, their literature stresses that they would prefer if the centre of power for people in Derry was in Dublin, but the reality is that it's in Westminster and people need to, to articulate the case there. So there's also other issues that are there in the mix. Um, one of the things that will hurt, I think, uh, well, certainly Sinn Féin, it may also hurt the SDLP, is the candidature of Ain Tu. Uh, as you remember, that was a breakaway party from yeah. Sinn Féin. Padre Tobin is the leader. Yeah. The deputy leader is from Derry, Anne McCluskey. She got 3,500 votes in the um, uh, Assembly elections. So she has a strong record of getting a vote. And she's running, you know, primarily, it seems, on, on the candidature. Oh, she's also an abstentionist, but on abortion, that she would essentially oppose abortion. As you might uh, remember, uh, the, there was a legislation passed in Westminster recently, yeah. meaning that now the 1967 Act applies to Northern Ireland, which is a, actually a, a much more liberal form of abortion than is, is, is down south. And the SDLP have, you know, stressed that they leave it to individual party members, indeed into individual politicians to make their own right. case on abortion, where Sinn Féin is uh, in favour of abortion. Yeah. So they're trying to kind of utilise that as another reason for, for the votes. But it's not the only constituency that is, 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 is up for grabs. I mean, North Belfast, where the Lord Mayor, um, John Finucan, who's of Sinn Féin, is challenging the leader of the DUP in, in Westminster, Nigel Dodds, that is, is, is the mother of all battles. Uh, it's conceivable that the DUP could lose North Belfast. They certainly will lose South Belfast, where they they, they got that with only 30% of the vote the last time. Sinn Féin 
have stood aside in that election. Not to, to split the, the nationalist vote, for want of a better word. Absolutely. Now, they're, not, they're, 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 they're at pains not to say that that's what they're doing. They're oh, saying sorry. it's the pro-Remain vote versus oh, yes. the Brexiteer vote. Now, some people have argued that actually it is more or less a tribal uh, pact um, and indeed unionists have been doing that for a long, long time and are doing it in this election in many constituencies like in Fermanagh, South Tyrone. Um, yeah, well, I mean, it, it makes sense if you're looking for numbers. What's tragic is that it still is also sectarian. That's the hurtful bit. It is, but it's not exclusively. So the Green Party have stood aside in all four constituencies in Belfast ostensibly to boost the Remain vote. And it's a it's quite a brave decision on their part because, you know, once you stand aside, the votes, the votes that yeah. you gained... You you may not get them back again. It reminds yeah. me of Labour must wait in 1918. You know, they're more or less saying, you know, this issue of Brexit is now so important that it, it, it eclipses everything else. Um, so, I mean, in the last election in 2017, the DUP got 10, Sinn Féin got 7. That was by far and away their bo- both of their best performances ever. So it's going to be really difficult for them to defend that. And anything less than that would be conceived as as, as backward. Right. Uh, okay. So every party's looking for momentum. OK. Now, um, I want to come back to Adrian Weckler to a conversation that I had with you after the programme was over uh, the last time you were in because it was all fair and uh, we thought it's pretty fascinating stuff for on air and a lot uh, has changed. You were on a business trip to China and you learned a lot about tech stuff there but also control. I think I learned quite a lot about tech stuff and control I think they probably learned a lot about me as well because the first thing that you do when you go across the border from Hong Kong there's a direct flight from Dublin to Hong Kong you go across the border You've no Google, no Facebook, no WhatsApp. No, gone, gone, gone. They're all gone. gone. There's the great firewall of China. So we often complain about how, you know, corrosive these services are. It's only when you actually can't get access to any of them that you're you're, you're back to sort of uh, to old-fashioned calls and texts that you realise how much you depend depend on them, particularly things like WhatsApp. So what you do instead, or what the, the only alternative, unless you want to pay about, you know, 20 euro uh, for For a a megabyte of data is you download their equivalent. So WeChat would be their equivalent for WhatsApp, for example. Baidu would be their equivalent to uh, Google, for example, Google Maps. And uh, did you know all this before you went? I did. I did know that. And I got a local SIM card and I... I had to, to, to actually stay uh, in, in communication. But the the overwhelming impression I got from visiting this city, it's called Shenzhen. It's just across the border from Hong Kong. It's one of the two or three tech metropolises of China. It's the headquarter city for Huawei, which was the reason I was there. I was yeah. there to, I was essentially there to try and chase down some of their senior executives and ask some of the big questions like, are you spying on us? And uh, you know, are, are, they? are we... Um, well, they said they're not, you know. Um, yeah, but Jim, the Americans were doing it. Yeah, I've interviewed, I, I did manage to interview some of their senior executives. I've also interviewed people from the National Security Council in the US on this uh, same subject. The, 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 the impression I have at the moment is that there is the bones of a case there, but it hasn't yet been... Uh, proven that's that that an awful lot of it is tied up in a trade war between China and the US and Huawei is one of the most 
successful companies. And when you go to the city Shenzhen, you realize what it is the Americans are actually afraid of. Shenzhen has a connection with Ireland. It's actually based on Shannon. So 40 years ago, it was nothing. It was a tiny fishing port. A, de- a delegation from the Communist Party came over to see how Europe's first uh, free trade zone worked, Shannon. They went back and built a city which they now has... They spied on Shannon. Well, no, 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 there are pictures. <laughs> I when, jest. The, the, there are actually photos of the Chinese delegation there and the locals from Shannon. There's about a two-foot gap between them. And and the, the Chinese <laughs> delegation went back, built Shenzhen, now has 20 uh, million people in it. it, it sprawling metropolis. The main street's about 30 miles long, has about 100 skyscrapers over 60, 70 storeys. I mean, if Johnny Ronan was looking for, you know, his his, his dream, that's where he would go. So it's it's an absolutely incredible city and you don't feel like you're in anything like a communist uh, uh, metropolis. Uh, Some people have this idea of China and Chinese cities as being like North Korea the absolute opposite. You walk down and it's, it's all retail. It's all uh, capitalism. And um, when, you, when you get into a taxi, um, it's very difficult to pay with cash. You pay with your phone. So, so they've, they've, they've transferred completely over to digital payments. Now, there is a bit of a dark side to all of this as well. Facial recognition and mm-hmm. cameras is absolutely everywhere. How does that work? A couple of different ways. So in some of the airports around China, they're rolling out that when you want to go to find out what gate your flight is at, for example, instead of going to a board and trying to find your flight number, you can look at a uh, an interactive screen. It will recognise you and tell you there and then, oh, hi, Adrian, your flight is uh, is at this gate in, in, in two hours' time. Now, that's, that that's, is so that's scary. early implementation of that technology. But more widely in the cities and the urban areas, Facial recognition and cameras are absolutely universal. It has a kind of a dystopian effect in that there's almost nobody uses the bus lane, right, in a car. There's zero crime when it comes to that kind of thing because you absolutely will be caught. But on the other hand, um, there's, you know, you're tracked almost everywhere you go. And we, we've seen a flavour of that in the Hong Kong riots where protesters are using masks. They're also using different types of pattern cl- uh, of clothing to throw off facial recognition and, and other uh, identifying technology that the cameras and, use. And, and you get points for citizenship. Yeah, there's a, there's a thing. There's It's been a little bit overplayed in the West, but they do have the, the, the kernel of what they call a social credit score. And that is essentially, they don't really have much of a credit system, like a credit card system in China, like we have here. So they're mixing that with uh, their facial recognition, with their tracking of what you do and, and what you don't do. And there is this uh, uh, emerging system where you are given a citizen score as to whether you're a good citizen or a bad citizen. So if you, And who decides? An algorithm? Uh, I'm not, I actually don't know whether it's an algorithm or whether it's an, a committee that rubber stamps everything. I know that when I crossed the border from Hong Kong into Shenzhen, I had a small audience of about 12 people all looking at the passport, all, crowding, all crowded around. So th- there are a lot of people... Uh, there are a lot of jobs in in, uh, in in bureaucracy in China, but the social credit score. The idea behind it is that if you um, commit misdemeanors, if you're not a model citizen, you find it harder to rent a house. Maybe, maybe you don't get the the leeway to uh, to for other things like traveling abroad that you might if you if you have a, a good a good social credit score. Now, this is not a mature system yet. This is very much so. I don't want to over. Over-sell over egg it, over yeah. egg it. Yeah. Um, but if you look at 
what the Chinese are doing. I mean, other small things. All the taxis in Shenzhen, a city of 20 million people, they're all electric. And that's because the local authorities clicked their fingers three years ago and said all the taxis are going to be electric. And now they're all electric. Um, if you look at the... Democracy can slow things Well, this is down, it. I it, mean, it, it, if, uh, what was interesting to me was I spoke to some young Chinese engineers. Coincidentally, I was in a bar. It's how I got the interview with the senior executive. It was through a karaoke session, but that, that's a story for another day. Um, I, I spoke to some of the young Chinese engineers and they were fairly well off relatively. They were looked fairly Western. The week I was there was the same week as the 30th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square right. rising. Yeah. I asked them what they thought about it, but half of them had never heard of it. Now, these are well-educated engineers through the university system into their 20s. Half of them hadn't heard of it. The other half were aware of it really. because they had seen maybe Western films or documentaries about it but weren't really that interested. Um, history is boring, is what one of them told me. So if you think about it, if you're a Chinese uh, uh, engineer or you're, you know, you're doing fairly well, yeah. you know, your consciousness is dictated to either by the misery of 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago or the boom that you have now. And they, 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 they choose the latter. Now, there's a dark side to all this. We, we haven't spoken about you know, detainment camps and things up north. I was only in this city, Shenzhen, right. big yeah. city, tech metropolis. But it, there's shades of it that are definitely our future. Well, I mean, you can see um, that why people wouldn't want to be extradited from Hong Kong, you know, if they have those. But anyway, it's all very, very interesting. But somebody else told me that, and I know you know America so well, mm. that the difference between China and America now is one is all shiny yeah. and new. And the infrastructure is completely others, different. Uh, yeah, yeah, and the other's kind of bockety and run down. Anyway, may I say thank you to everybody uh, who came in on, and contributed to the programme today. Uh, program Emily Harley is our broadcast coordinator. Katrina McFadden and Michelle Brown, researchers. Jamie Doyle was on sound. Annette Egan produced. And Rachel Graham is the series producer. That's all from us for today from all of us here. A very good day to you.